I'm going to start this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. And David said to Abathur the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathur brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover it all. The Bible tells us the story of David. And it's a magnificent story in a lot of ways, although he had his failures and times where he came up short. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, the Bible tells us that Saul was made to be king of Israel. And when he started off, he was humble. And he was somebody that God could use. But he let the position get to him and stop... Um, obeying specifically and in the detail that he was commanded to obey. And so God went through the prophet Samuel to David's house, David's father's house, and anointed him to be the next king of Israel. Now, these things happened before David met Goliath. You remember the story of how he defeated him with the uh, slinging rocks at him and um, and we know that David was a teenager probably mid-teens when uh, he when he met uh, Goliath and we know that he was age 30 when he began to rule over Israel you remember that he was encouraged by some of his military advisors to take the life of Saul but he wouldn't do it he wouldn't touch God's anointed he knew that Saul had made mistakes, but he was still the one that God had chosen. So he honored him in every way that he could. But Saul knew that David had the hand of God upon him. And so he went out and undertook trying to kill David for probably a decade of David's life. And here David has been serving the Lord for somewhere between 13 or 15 years, knowing that he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. So he went into the land of the Philistines to escape from Saul's search and hunting him down. And he's spent many years organizing guerrilla attacks 
against the enemies of Israel, doing things in secret so that he would not be found out. And he comes to this place after honoring God, serving God, waiting on God to make a way for him to become the king of Israel. He comes to a point in time where after doing things right, serving God, keeping his hand off of the king of Israel that's trying to kill him, he comes to the place where his wives and his goods are stolen, as was all the army that he developed with him over the years. The Bible tells us that he had a, a ragtag bunch of followers, people that were dissatisfied and people that were dismayed, broken down in their own lives. And he turned them with God's help into a mighty army. And now this mighty army wants to destroy him, wants to put him to death. It's interesting that it says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Folks, we can be grieved about things to the point where we choose to do the wrong things because of the, the leading of our emotions. And so David was in a place, probably the lowest place of his life, as I said, he's done everything right. He's honored God. He's honored the king, even though he's an evil and wicked king by this time. And David was greatly distressed, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Folks, Paul wrote to us, I wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is. He said, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, that word perilous is, is translated, uh, where it's translated differently, it's translated dangerous in most uh, texts. But one of the root meanings of this word perilous is strength-reducing, strength-reducing. And then he talks about how the people will be and characteristics of people's lives and activities and so forth, lovers of their own selves, covetous, traitors, without natural affection or family affection, and so forth. He's warning Timothy, and because the, the letter was saved for us, warning us too that if we're going to be strong in these last days it's going to be up to us and the determination of our own will strength reducing would certainly mean that Satan is trying to sift us even as Jesus said that he would try to sift Peter But just because we live in perilous times, strength-reducing times, it's up to us whether or not our strength is going to be reduced. One of the, the great 
truths of these last days is the deception that Jesus warned us about when Jesus was asked in Mark uh, in Matthew chapter 24 the sign of his coming and the signs of the end times first thing he said was let no man deceive you there are so many things that are going on in our world in, in the nation that we live in it's hard to recognize America from the way that we are now The things that are being done, the lies spoken in hypocrisy, the activities of the leadership that we have currently in this point in time, it just doesn't make any sense. And if you're trying to make sense out of the world that we live in today, you're going to become greatly discouraged. I don't know of a time in our nation, with the exception perhaps of the days of the Civil War, that there's more cause to be discouraged. The things that are being done and acting like it's in line with the dictates of the Constitution and the constitutional nation that America was established to be, it just doesn't make sense. It's, uh, it's funny because the things that are taking place in the world around us really identify how the devil is and how the devil works. It's almost as if, as with this current president, the current administration, they don't really have a plan. They're in charge, but they just do things almost at the spur of the moment or at the drop of a hat. And th these things are designed to weaken the nation and to discourage us. The Bible tells us, Paul wrote to Timothy and said the only thing that's holding the Antichrist from coming back is the church, the presence of the church in the earth. As fast as things are moving and things are changing and so forth, when the church is out of here, when Jesus comes back and we're raptured, things will hit high speed and a high speed activity like nothing we've ever seen. People think of the devil's kingdom and the devil's operation as being highly sophisticated and with clear-cut vision and so forth. But folks, the devil is the author of confusion. And so his kingdom is going to be full of confusion. And some of the confusion that's surrounding activities and things that are being done against the welfare of our nation and certainly against the welfare of the church 
it's a sign in, unto itself. I wish somebody could explain to us how printing billions of dollars and sending it to the Ukraine and increasing the inflationary re, uh, results of things that are going on in our country, I wish somebody could explain why that's a smart thing to do. It's absolutely ludicrous. It's stupid. And it's, the result is, of course, going to be adding to the destruction of our nation. Now, folks, this story about David, when he hit the low point of his life, at least the low point of his life up to that point in time, it was only a matter of days till David became the king of Israel. His greatest discouragement was a precursor to the plan of God being fulfilled and come into being in his life. He went from utter defeat, the loss of his family, the loss of his goods, as well as for the army that was with him. He went from the lowest point in just a matter of a couple of days to the fulfillment of what God had for him to do. With all the lawlessness and the unconstitutional things that are taking place, we've got situations where there's admission to the revealing of classified documents and so forth. I know when, uh, uh, for example, you may remember when James Comey was in charge of the FBI, he released classified information to the press knowing what he was doing. He admitted it freely. And then we know the thing with Hillary Clinton's uh, 3,000 emails or whatever it was. Much of that included classified information as well. Nothing has been done about these situations. Now, I'm a law and order guy. I need to see a perp walk. And it would be such an encouragement to me if we saw some of these people go to jail. But folks, these people are never going to go to jail. They're never going to be held accountable in a legal sense. They'll answer for it when they stand before God. But I think we can learn something from David just as we may be discouraged because of the things that we see going on around us. The ludicrousy of this LGBT, QRST, XYZ stuff. There are things that are being done and claim the claim that they make to be true is unlike anything we've ever experienced in our country. Now, folks, politics is not the answer for America. Political candidates 
are not going to be able to turn America around. We're in the end times. And the Bible talks about men being worse and worse. One of the things that the, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think, he wrote to them about a claim that had been made claiming to be from Paul. There was a letter that was distributed to the Thessalonians and it was designed to make them think that the rapture had come and gone and the church had missed it. And it tells us one of the things that God will do when the church is raptured and the Antichrist is revealed. It says that God will give them strong delusion that they'll believe a lie. There's a lot of lies that are being promoted. We're supposed to believe by some ridiculous explanation that men can have periods and men can give birth. Some of these things are so outlandish it's hard to take them serious. But all these things add up to the one truth. And folks, the attack, the war that's taking place in our country is a war against the truth. And there's nobody that can decide for you whether or not you will hold fast to the truth, not just common sense stuff like there are two sexes, male and female, and that's it. This Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors of engendering is ridiculous. But when the church is out of here, the assault on the truth will be devastating. So we see these things that are being promoted and it's up to us to maintain a strong hold on that which is true. Turn, turn with you to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, it said, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord, had, Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, would somebody explain to me why they failed? Would somebody explain to me why they chose to disobey God? Folks, they're living in a perfect paradise. It's not like they could say, well, times are tough. Let's try something else. Every day is perfection. Everything around them is perfection. We don't know how long they lived without the presence of sin. The ancient rabbis claimed that Moses told them, as God had told him, that they lived on the earth for 33 years before they fell. And they, uh, uh, certain ones uh, connect that to Jesus' 33 years on the earth. Whether that's true or not, nobody really knows. But we do know that whatever period of time they were here living and enjoying the per perfect paradise that God had created for them, there was no incidents or circumstance that befell them that was anything short of perfection. I think we could look at David's life and understand why he might give up hope somewhere along the way. Somewhere in the 13 to 15 year range David has been persecuted. He's been hunted down by the king of Israel, the king of the land that David loved. And he even had great affection for Saul, at least in the beginning. So we might understand if he had a lapse in faith somewhere along the way. But he didn't. He encouraged himself in the Lord. How did he do that? What was there to encourage himself in? Or what was the method whereby he encouraged himself in the Lord? Well, the only thing that he had to encourage himself in was the promise of God. I'm sure he remembered back to when Samuel came to his house and was directed by God to anoint the next king of Israel. But Samuel didn't know who it was. So he had Jesse, who was David's father, bring his sons before them one at a time. And each time they started from the, the oldest and went down to the youngest. And each time one of his sons was brought before him, the Lord said, that's not him. Finally, they get to where all the sons have come through. 
and none of them was the one. And so Samuel said, you got any more sons? And Jesse said, well, there's one. He's the smallest, the youngest, and he's out in the field tending to the sheep. So Samuel said, well, bring him in. We're not going to stop with this. We're not going to eat until we finish the Lord's business. And so he came in, and he was just a young boy. As we said, probably somewhere in his mid-teens. And the Lord said, that's the one. And he said something that's uh, told us the principle of something that will hold you instead if you'll accept it. He said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And it was David's heart, his spirit, the real him, that qualified him to be the next king of Israel. His brothers were older, bigger, more developed. And there were several of them that looked like they could make a good king. But God looks on the inward spirit. He looks on that which we have committed ourselves unto. One of the things that I encourage myself in the Lord concerning things that are going on around us, and it seems like every day is some new thing. But the Bible says, God said, that before the rapture, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. I'm not exactly sure what that means. And it seems to come to my attention regularly how that we can, in error, put our own interpretation on what God said. For example, in Matthew 24, when Jesus was talking about the signs of his coming, he said, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That nation... Word nation is the word ethnos in the Greek. And it means differences in races. It would be better translated instead of nation shall rise against nation. Race shall rise against race. And there is nothing more important than the devil is doing in these last days than trying to divide us. Divide us into to the color of our skin. We also know of wars where kingdoms rise against kingdoms. This war in the Ukraine is a, a good example of that. That word kingdom really means countries in our understanding. And the devil is working overtime, doing what he does. And there's nothing more important or more basic, more foundational in his work rather than deception. 
So when Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world with proof and evidence, I believe that has to mean the kingdom of God operating in power. You remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after Jesus' resurrection, he was with the disciples and seen of them 40 days. And then Jesus was ascended back up into heaven several days before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the 120 and then the 3,000, or I think it was 5,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said to his disciples, actually, why don't you turn with me to Acts 1. I want you to see something. I'm not sure I'd do it justice if I said it without this thing in front of me. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou, thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I want you to see that even after the resurrection, the disciples are still looking for a political solution. They're thinking that Jesus died on the cross to make us righteous, to bring about a political end or a political result. Jesus answered them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Now that's in reference to the question that they asked about politics. They're thinking about being released and freed from Roman rule. And so when Jesus answers and says, not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, he's talking about a political end or a governmental end, really. Jesus knows that there's going to be a time when he comes back and rules the earth with a rod of iron. And that's the freedom that was prophesied and that he fulfilled. So he says, not for you to know when that's going to take place. Of course, we know when it takes place. It takes place at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back in glory and power. But notice what he does. He says it is about. It's not about a political result. It's not about a transfer of government power. Verse 8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. But you shall receive power. Now we know in Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 it tells us to ask of the Lord reign in the time of the latter reign. And that reign is defined in Hosea chapter 6 as the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus, or the prophet Zechariah, tells us, and the prophecy is left for the church to fulfill, when he tells us to ask of the Lord reign, he's saying ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
ask for a move of the Holy Spirit. Now we know also that there are some things that the Bible tells us. For example, in James chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience until he received the early and the latter rain. Well, that early and latter rain is what Zechariah 10.1 tells us to pray for. And since it's the Holy Spirit that we're praying for, a moving of the Holy Spirit, it's talking about praying for the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to be made manifest on the earth. Now back to Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. Ask give the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. And then it tells us what the result will be if we pray. And the Lord will give them showers of rain. Now again, the rain is a moving of the Holy Spirit. So when we're instructed to ask God for the rain, he said, ask for the rain, which is the moving of the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you outpourings of the Holy Spirit. He will give you showers of rain. Now what outpourings of the Holy Spirit is he talking about? Well, the only place that the Bible tells us definitively about the power of God is in 1 Corinthians where it tells us about the gifts of the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. It gives us nine manifestations of the, of the Holy Ghost. Three of them reveal something, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. Three of them do something, the gift of faith or special faith, working of miracles, and gifts of healings. And then three of them say something, diversities of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. So if we ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and that rain will produce showers, or, or, or the, the, that prayer will produce showers of rain, which is outpouring the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say that he'll send lightnings. But we know of lightnings as a, as a display of power. There's nothing that displays God's power through nature like a lightning strike. You don't even have to be close to it, but seeing lightning streak from the sky can make us be in awe of God's power. And if we are close enough to hear something or see something strike the ground or something along those uh, lines, there's no doubt, but the impression is made upon us about the power of God. And that's just nature. God's power in the spirit realm is a lot more than his power in, in the earth or in nature. So he said, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. And so the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. That grass in the field would correspond to the precious fruit of the earth. And turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 tells us of a, an event that takes place in the first part of the chapter. Verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. It tells about the young men that came and went out and buried Ananias. And three hours later, Sapphira comes, his wife comes, and Peter questions her briefly, asks her what the land sold for, and she told the number that her husband had told her to tell. So she was a partner to the lie as well. She fell down and expired, died. And at that time, the young men came back in from burying her husband, just got, took her on round two, buried her too. Now, folks, this story has a significant meaning and part of the power of the Holy Ghost in the early days of the church. At the end of Acts chapter 4, it tells us that Barnabas, his name was first Joseph, but Barnabas sold a piece of land and brought it to the church, and it was received and produced a great encouragement to the disciples, the apostles that were heading up the church in Jerusalem. In fact, it was such an encouragement that they changed his name to Barnabas, which means encourager. Now, it also tells us we know Barnabas and the position that God made for him to join himself to the apostles. But why is this story about Ananias and Sapphira included in the power of the Holy Ghost that was poured out upon the early church? See, if the Bible says Jesus is waiting for the early and the latter rain, then we should get some clues from the early rain what the latter rain would look like. And one of the first things that happens in the early days of the church is this thing with Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost. Now, you know as well as I do that not everybody that lies to the Holy Ghost falls dead instantly. So if it's not the lie to the Holy Ghost alone that caused this situation to turn out the way that it did, then what is the significance of this story? Well, the only thing that seems to make sense to me is that they were using this sale of the property and the money that they gave, not all of the proceeds went to the church, but the part that they were bringing to the church, which is a great thing to do. It was an encouragement when Barnabas did it. It would have been an encouragement when they did it. But they must have been looking for something more. They must have been looking to ta have a place 
among the apostles, a place that God did not set out for them. They must have tried to enter into another person's office, ministry office, spiritual office, beyond what God had for them to do. And so we see that the principle for the moving of the Holy Ghost in the early days of the church was to get the right people on board and get the wrong people off. Ananias and Sapphira must have been trying to gain a place in the church among the leadership of the church, which was not God's plan or purpose for them to have. Now, when that takes place, the Bible tells us what took place next. It says in verse 11, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in, in Solomon's porch. Notice verse 13, And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. That must be in reference to Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe not to, just exclusively to them, but it includes them. And of the rest, there no man joined themselves to him. They must have been trying to join themselves to the apostles. So we see that one of the works of God, one of the works of the power of God in operation in the early church was to magnify the disciples or the apostles in the eyes of the people. Not to make heroes to worship out of them. Not to result in some form of idolatry in any context. But a supernatural reverence. A place, God-given place, where these apostles were caretakers of the souls of the people and recognized as such. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought the sick into the street and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about in Jerusalem, bringing sick folks. And they which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. Now, folks, we don't have any record of Jesus healing anybody by shadow. We don't have any indication whatsoever that Jesus' shadow produced any healing power or healing virtue in his earthly ministry. So why is God doing a different thing and a new thing with healing in the early days of the church? Remember Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, I believe it is, 
He said, the works that I do shall you do also. And greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Now, I'm not sure if greater works would include this healing by shadow in every respect. But it certainly does in at least one respect. So ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. And the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightning. And give them showers of rain. Outpourings of the Holy Spirit. To everyone grass in the field. It produced people being born into the church. Born into the family of God. I believe. Based on this scripture. That if it happened in the early rain. It could just as easily happen in the latter rain. And it could go even further. We could look at this as if God's plan is to show forth healing in other ways, a multiple, multiplicity of ways, including healing by shadow. If he did it then, he could do it today. But it could also mean that just like it was, healing was manifest to produce healing for everyone and freedom from the bondage of the devil for everyone, then there could be other ways that God would display his power. I doubt very seriously if anybody prayed for healing by shadow in the early days of the church. But rather it was something that God did to manifest his willingness to heal, his power over sickness and disease, and demon oppression. And to show forth the last days, proof of the last days, just like he did in the early days of the church. You remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching, and there's a lot of the Pharisees and the priestly society that's there in, in the place where he is. And it says because of the words that he spoke, many of the people believed on him. And again, that reference is to people in the, uh, in the priest company or the priest service. And then he said to those that believed in him, he said, if you continue in my word, then shall you know the truth and the truth will make you free. He actually said that continuing in the word was being a disciple. He makes a distinction between the believers and the disciples. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Folks, has the truth changed? Does the truth ever change? If the truth worked, or the word worked to produce the knowledge of the truth, to set people free, when Jesus was here on the earth, then the same truth, the same word of God that he preached, that's available for us to preach and testify to, will produce the same results of freedom 
in the church today. There's only one way that the devil can take the truth away from you, and that is to divert your attention from the Word. No matter what goes on around us, no matter what changes we make in these last days, and there are changes that we've made, and there may be other changes that we make depending on the circumstances and how things go from here, but none of those changes can or should take us away from the truth of the word of God. God's word is just as great today as it was 10 years ago. God's word can produce freedom in just as great a measure today as it could when Jesus was here. God's word, as Jesus said several times in his earthly ministry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never fail. Faithful is he who called you, who will also bring it to pass. The things that God has spoken to your heart, don't let those things go. No matter how long it's been between the time that he said it and the place where we are today. We've all got some long-term things that are still yet to come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the church. In the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters, it tells us of Jesus with the disciples at that last Lord's Supper that he ate with them. And then he went out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed for the church. And there's, it's a beautiful prayer probably a little long for us to read today but one of the things that he said in John chapter 17 verse 17 he said sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth and then he went on and he said and not just these that believe talking about the apostles but those that will believe on him Jesus through their word folks that's us Every one of us have been born again in some way by the word of the apostles. And so his prayer is for us just as much as it was for them. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds or display his power, manifest his presence, and give them showers of rain, revelation gifts, power gifts, utterance gifts, 
and produce grass in the field. Folks, I truly believe that there is a, a moving of the Holy Spirit to affect sickness and disease, to overcome demonic possession or oppression. I believe God's going to do some things in the last days that will, I don't know how else to say this. It's, I'm not satisfied with this, but I don't know how else to say it. That will thrill us beyond anything we've ever experienced. I'm expecting to see people get out of wheelchairs. I'm expecting to see cancers disappear. I'm expecting people to be healed by shadow. That is if God's still in the healing by shadow business. I'm also expecting him to do something by means that we haven't even thought of. He told the early church, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I believe that the power of God will be seen in even greater measure in these last days than it was in the early days. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you. And because of that, according to your word, you will keep us in perfect peace. Father, we ask you for the rain, just as you told us to in Zechariah 10.1. We ask you for the rain, a moving of the Holy Spirit, a demonstration of power gifts, revelation gifts, and utterance gifts. You said, Father, that if we asked you for these things, that you would send bright clouds or lightnings and showers of rain, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. that would produce grass in the field or the precious fruit of the earth. Lord James 5, 7 tells us that you are waiting for the precious fruit of the earth that will be brought into the kingdom of God through the early and the latter rain. Jesus, if you're waiting for those that will be born into the kingdom of God because of this last day move of the Holy Spirit, then we recognize the importance. We recognize how important this moving of the Holy Ghost is and will be. So Father, give us the rain. Display your power.
manifest your presence and give us these showers of rain this moving of the Holy Spirit bring people into the kingdom of God by millions in Jesus precious name now Holy Spirit we trust you we know what to pray for but not as we ought so we ask you for utterance that we might pray from our spirits those things that are needful and necessary to occur so we thank you in advance Holy Spirit for hearing and answering our prayer Thank you, Father, for the moving of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for the healing of everyone. Thank you for freedom. We do know your word, Father. Therefore, we know the truth. And we thank you that that truth has made us free and will continue to free us in every possible way. In Jesus' precious name, if you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you folks.